Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Rational Funds. This and other important information about the fund is contained in the prospectus, which can be obtained by calling 800-253-0412 or at www.rationalmf.com. The prospectus should be read carefully before investing. The Rational Funds are distributed by Northern Lights Distributors, LLC member FINRA SIPC. Rational Advisors Incorporated and Resolve Asset Management Incorporated are not affiliated with Northern Lights Distributors, LLC. Hello and welcome to the Gestalt U podcast. This is your host, Adam Butler. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Resolve Global. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Rodrigo Gordillo, who is the CEO of Resolve Global, and a special guest, Jason Josifiak from Makita Investment Group. And the title of this episode is Rethinking Portable Alpha, Risk Mitigation Strategies, and the Future of Institutional Investing. Today, we cover actually a wide variety of different themes, cover Jason's background and what he does at Makita, cover asset allocation, including label versus category diversification versus risk or functional diversification, risk parity allocation strategies versus more traditional methods, portable alpha and its evolution, Jason's term risk mitigation strategies. So synthetically creating your own bond with risk factors, not directly tied to spreads and rates, 
long volatility first responders, trend following as second responders, beta neutral and uncorrelated diversifiers. We also talk about behavioral and psychological impacts and biases that affect investor choices, why hedge funds are not really an asset class, and many hedge fund programs tend not to withstand the test of time. We discuss what is risk, so volatility, drawdowns, active risk, tracking error, generalists versus specialists, their different roles, how liability-driven investment portfolios could be improved by the use of risk mitigation strategies and diversifiers, the evolution of alpha-beta separation and factor risks. In fact, an interesting discussion of what exactly is alpha and beta in the modern environment, and how can investment managers and investors become more aligned in their objectives. This is almost a full two hours, and we pack a lot into that. So without further ado, I bring you my interview with Jason Josifiak of Makita Investment Group. Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt You podcast. We have today with us our guest, Jason Josifiak, and my co-host, Rodrigo Gordillo. And Jason is from Makita Consulting, and we're going to talk about optimal ways to construct institutional portfolios, specifically touching on alternatives and what Makita and Jason call risk mitigation strategies. So uh, Jason, maybe to start us off, give us a little bit about your background and how you landed at Makita and then what you're doing in your current role. Yeah. No, first of all, guys, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. I mean, I'm a voracious podcast listener, so it's kind of odd to be doing one, but look forward to it and looking forward to having fun. But yeah, so I'm at Makita Investment Group. I joined Makita in May of 2021. So I've been there for a little bit over a year now. Prior to that, I was at a corporate pension plan managing their portable alpha hedge fund allocation. I know portable alpha has some negative connotations associated with it. So we'll get into that later on. And then prior to that, I was at a global asset management firm that was a subsidiary of BNY Mellon. And that firm was focused mostly on long-only active equities with some hedge funds. So I've gone from being on the dark side of asset management on more kind of sales and client service to hopping over to the other side of being an allocator for a big institutional pool of capital. And now I'm sort of towing the line in between of helping institutional allocators build their portfolios, as well as doing a bit on the consulting side on the non-discretionary as well as discretionary. So it's kind of the best of both worlds with allocating as well as sort of an asset management type of spin to it with the discretionary side of our business too. I think actually a really interesting place to start is what is portable alpha and why does it have a negative connotation? I didn't realize that. So fill us in. (laughs) Yeah, so portable alpha, it's not what most people think it is, or at least it shouldn't be. From my understanding of portable alpha, you know, one of the, the original practitioners, at least in the corporate pension space, was their warehouse or pension plan back in the late 70s or early 80s or so. There's a gentleman there by the name of um, Robert Ferguson, actually, and he's still around. He, he heads up a fund of funds on the West Coast. And then his boss, I believe, was Jack Coates, who was a CIO of Warehouser at the time. And then so they've really brought this notion of separating alpha and beta and hiring arbitrage, hedge fund-like strategies, marrying that with futures across you know, the equity space, fixing space, whatever it might be, and getting more bang for your buck. So instead of putting 100 bucks in a long-only active strategy where you, know, you can only allocate to so much active risk, get that via 
financial leverage via futures and then put the rest of that capital into hedge funds. Then I think over time, you know, as a hedge fund universe grew, you started to have these more long short equity types of funds. And then you had other forms of notions of alpha beta separation that were saying, okay, well, our beta is equities and anything outside of equities is alpha. And then so you had sort of this advent of these short duration credit strategies. And I think we all know what happened during the crisis there with you're putting a short duration credit on top of an equity beta, and that's just beta on top of beta. And when correlations increase, you get blown out on both sides of that trade. And then you had other allocators, right, putting together a quote unquote hedge fund program and anything underneath the sun that is long short equity is apparently 100% alpha. But of course, they run with pretty high net exposure because if you want to get paid on incentive fee, and you want to put up a decent return, then you need some embedded beta there to juice up that return to get paid on your incentive fee. So once you had folks mishmashing together a bunch of long short strategies that had embedded beta, whether credit spread or or equities, and you put a beta one on equities, you know, with that, then you're just levered beta. And then again, when stuff hits the fan, you get blown out on both sides of the trade. So I mean, I'll pause there if you guys want to, you know, ask yeah, me no, that's that's that that makes sense to me. The certainly the alpha overlay has changed and evolved through time, and and we're going to get to what are ideal alpha stacks that you can put on top of beta. But let's discuss a little bit what beta has meant to the world of, of institutions, you know, throughout the last thirty years and what it is today. What is an asset class? How did they feel about it twenty years ago, and how are we thinking about it today? Yeah, I mean. I- from my perspective, really hasn't changed that much over the past 20 years, except we've introduced new labels such as alternatives and private equity and private debt, private credit. There's only a few asset classes out there. There's equities, there's credit, there's rates, there's commodities, there's FX, and maybe you could throw a ball in there. Although you could argue you could implement all of those asset classes in a long ball or a short ball type of manner. And then there's those asset classes across public markets and private markets. But again, over time, things have just been sort of have more label proliferation than actually any new things to invest in. So investors have gone from typical kind of public equity, public debt, 60-40 portfolios to private equity, private debt portfolios, where you still have some public equity and public bond allocation, but you've introduced those alternatives. And to me, you know, alternatives is just a really lazy way of pulling the veil in front of people and making it sound like it's something that it's really not. And it gets back again to all those kind of basic asset classes that are there. You're just extending your duration, you're locking up capital, and you could argue there's a risk premium there for illiquidity. But at the end end of the day, equity is equity, credit spread is credit spread, interest rates are rates, commodities are commodities. They're just repackaged differently. So how does a typical institution define alternatives or the alternative sleeve now? I mean, I remember it used to be that alternatives encapsulated all of the things that you mentioned, publicly traded real estate, commodities, gold, long, short funds, market neutral, CTAs, et cetera, was kind of in, in alternatives. I thought that there had been at least a transition from not classifying private securities as alternatives over the, at least the last three to five years. Many institutions have kind of made that yeah, yeah. shift, yeah. thankfully. Yeah. So what's the current state of affairs in terms of how institutions think about alternatives? I think it really depends on where you go 
and the sophistication level of the boards and of the investment teams. I don't really see explicit alternative buckets out there, you know, anymore. So people have, I think, label things in an appropriate manner now. However, sometimes we'll still see hedge fund allocations or absolute return allocations. And then you kind of live in this no man's land of really what is the purpose of that? And sometimes you find the purpose of that is to kind of jam things in there that don't fit nicely anywhere else, but you like it enough that you want to invest in it. However, where that goes wrong over time is when those strategies don't keep up with beta one over the last you know 10 or 12 years, they're like, well, why are we investing in these higher fee types of products where I can go and get the S&P for whatever, a basis point, a few basis points. So, you know, you've started to see those things go away too, because folks rather get the risk premium in equities and then get a higher risk premium if you go into you know private equity or on the other end, go into private credit, private debt versus say the Barclays Ag or investment grade bonds or, or high yield bonds. So it's just and, like structure arbitrage though, Jason, it feels like the advantage of allocating to privates has nothing to do with diversification and everything has to do with the constraints on, on many institutional portfolios. Like you can buy a private equity fund and you get embedded leverage of whatever it is around 60%. So you get a little extra juice there. You also don't get daily marks, which is attractive for many institutions. They don't need to report losses to their boards when markets go down. But in reality, it's just cloaking. There's nothing really novel about private securities. You're buying equities or you're buying credit. And what you're buying really is just access to leverage because you can't directly take on leverage at the the fund level and that smoothing of returns. Yeah. And I think, you know, it really depends on your perspective, depends on where you sit. So I obviously have a bias because I've spent a lot of my career in the hedge fund world. However, I think there's a role for every type of investing out there. When I say every type of investing, I'm talking about you know, private equity, private credit. There's definitely a role there, but you still have to pick and choose your spots, just like you have to pick and choose your spots in the hedge fund world. And I even hate using the term hedge fund because it's like, you know, what is that? Saying hedge funds is like saying sports. Saying we invest in hedge funds is saying like, we invest in ETFs markets. or we, we, invest we invest in, in like markets. mutual funds. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it all really comes down to the strategy that you're investing in and those people that you're investing in. Because this is really, you know, a people-oriented business, and with the advent of big data and access to data and information and, and flow, data has been democratized. And I think investors have been too keen on using quantitative tools to optimize previous sort of, you know, historical uh, outcomes. Um, and of course, you want to use those tools to get an understanding of what has been possible or what has been realized in the past, but then you have to use a bit more of your imagination and more of the art and qualitative side of, of our brains and of the approach of, of investing to assess you know, the risks that aren't in the back test, that aren't in the historical data set, even if they might rhyme, but they could be realized in a much different type of manner. So when you think about these categories of, what are we calling it then? So we have the alternatives are no longer alternatives. So these are now asset classes like real estate and gold and all that are just betas. Is that like what we're calling them? Okay. So now we have X amount allowed in the alternative sleeve. Is that what we're calling it? The way that we slice and dice the hedge fund world at Makita is we think about the world in terms of return-seeking strategies and risk-mitigating strategies. Now, return-seeking is your typical directional long-short equity fund 
event-driven funds, uh, directional, your directional credit funds. And then risk mitigating is more in the beta neutral world, as well as trend following, as well as long volatility. The way that we try to help our clients better understand kind of how to think about that is in this framework of RMS, risk mitigating strategies. And we break it down to three components. First responders, which are your long ball types of oriented managers. And, and that can, again, be sliced and diced a lot of different ways. It's a tail risk hedging where you're spending some sort of risk budget and buying deep on money puts on, you know, on some sort of index, most likely the S&P. Or is it more of a actively oriented long ball manager that's looking at rates, credit, equities, FX, commodity, and they're just trying to source and find cheap vol across the world, regardless you know, of where it is or what asset class it might be in. And then you can perhaps argue that strips or long duration treasuries could be in that bucket of first responders. However, rates, treasuries have a temporal negative correlation to equities. So what has worked so well for quite some time now, that is definitely coming into question right now. And you don't even have to really, what has happened over the past you know, six to 12 months here that's not the reason to really question whether rates will be a good hedge going forward. You just have to look back over more than 20 years and realize, hey, yeah. over the whole course of history, rates and equities have been more positively correlated than negatively correlated, and especially when you're in a more inflationary type of environment. Particularly so, when. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like the so, problem yeah. is we haven't seen periods of high inflation and then deflation, high inflation, deflation. We, we were riddled with that from 1900 to 1980. And we've been largely absent of that in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's been put in the category of non-correlated savior. But it is an, it's interesting to see how that's kind of changing. And you, like you said, we just have to look at the past. Exactly, exactly. So that's first responders. Long duration treasuries, long vol, tail risk hedging. Second responders are trend following. I'll just say that broadly, because there's lots of different ways you can implement that. And then diversifiers is our third component. And that's really more beta neutral, market neutral types of hedge fund strategies. And that can cut across various different asset classes. And then we can put some things in there that might be very uncorrelated to kind of capital markets, perhaps ILS, think about appraisal rights, think about litigation finance. Those are areas you can maybe play in that aren't explicitly tied to capital markets, financial flows and whatnot. So, so- so the risk-seeking one that you mentioned before, it will take beta. And what you're trying to do with return this- Return-seeking. Return-seeking. Re- return-seeking, yeah. Okay. yeah. What you're trying to do with this third category within the risk mitigation strategy is just provide non-beta alpha. When we discussed this in the past, you had things like global macro and long-short multi-strat. Those tend to have conditional correlations. It yeah. seems to me- it's not a guaranteed market neutral approach. How do you think about No, I mean, even market neutral is never a guaranteed market neutral approach, right? Because when you get into a delevering event, mm. when folks take down their risk, the shorts are going to rip higher, the longs are going to rip lower, and you're going to lose a bit there. So then you really have to pick and choose how much leverage do you want in those types of strategies? And what do you believe could be the distribution you know, of outcomes on the left side there in a adverse event? So we really think about that book as how much pain are we willing to tolerate for max drawdown in any one given strategy there. And that might vary by strategy, depending on kind of what they're doing. And leverage is not created equal across all these strategies, right? If you're a fixed income relative value fund, of course, you're going to be using many more turns of leverage than a sector-focused equity market neutral fund. So the goal there is 
you're going to lose money in those big down events, but our goal is to lose five to ten percent in that diversifiers bucket, not you know fifteen plus. And right. then and on the flip side is you use that third bucket to carry the first and second responders in exactly. the decade like like we've experienced the last exactly decade. exactly. And depending yeah. on, on what a client is looking for, they can pick and choose the mix between first responders, second responders, and diversifiers based on their goals and objectives. When we think about it, we sort of t- take a naive approach, a third of our risk in diversifiers, a third in trend following, a third in you know, long ball or, or treasuries. But again, it really depends on the goals of the organization and where their gaps might be across their portfolio and what their own kind of biases might be and philosophy on investing. Now, I can't imagine that is an easy strategy to stick to long term in a roaring equity bull market. Are you attempting to provide that as a, as a stack, like as an overlay? Yeah. So this is where not many investors do it, but the investors that tend to do the best over time and tend to kind of be recognized in the industry are ones that are implementing this in some sort of portable alpha type of fashion. Typically in portable alpha programs, I don't see too much in the long ball or trend following space. I think there's an opportunity there for investors to help dampen the downside risk of that negative skew embedded in market neutral types of strategies. So, you know, whether the split is a third, a third, a third across first responders, second responders and diversifiers, or whether it's, hey, I want 60% in diversifiers, I want 20% in long vol and 20% in trend following. I think it depends, again, on their total asset allocation and what their goals are, what type of return are are they trying to meet and what type of risk are, are they willing to take. Where do you think about allocating to long short equity and long short credit? Seems to me that people think about those as alternatives, but they typically have sort of an average beta to the underlying of between 0.6 and 0.8. So I've always thought that long short equity should be lumped in with equity and long short credit should be lumped in with credit. But a lot of institutions don't do that, is my understanding. Is that right? Yeah, that's where kind of long short equity, long short credit, it lives in no man's land because investors are never happy because it doesn't keep up with beta one. And then on the downside, they lose more than what they would want them to lose because they think it's absolute return or it's a hedge fund. Hey, you shouldn't lose money when the market goes down. And if you look at the HFRI index since its inception back in like Jan 90 or so, and you take it through, you know, March of 2022, the beta of that index, the S&P is about 035 but the downside beta, I mean, when S&P goes down, is slightly higher than 0.35. And the upside beta, when S&P is up, is slightly lower than 0.35. So they're getting yeah, more of the downs and, and, and less of the ups there. For sure. So that's definitely one of the challenges. But the other challenge is that the beta has increased over time, right? Because it's it, just been harder and harder to generate alpha. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned earlier, when it's harder to generate alpha, then you allow your beta to creep higher so you continue to print your performance fees, right? So it's, um, whereas long short equity may have been a little bit more accretive from a diversification standpoint a decade or two ago, it now is kind of much more of an equity proxy than a alpha proxy, at least if you look at the numbers over the last decade or so. And then credit's kind of the same. Long short credit's a little bit of a newer asset class, right? But um, more asset category, but has similar kind of characteristics. I think on the long short equity side, there's certainly managers out there that can put up alpha in that space. However, we don't want our clients paying for that embedded beta. And unfortunately, the industry really hasn't come far enough yet to say, hey, to admit, hey, yes, we do have embedded beta here versus this benchmark. 
and the benchmark should be representative of what they're actually, you know, the universe that they're hunting in. Mm-hmm. And then we'll pay you an incentive fee over that benchmark, not over some sort of risk-free rate, not over some sort of you know, zero hurdle. Yeah, but that's such a difficult thing sometimes. When okay, so there's there's obviously mandates that can be very specific. We're, we're going to say, listen, I'm a market neutral fund, and my goal is to provide zero beta for you, so you just get my pure alpha from a spread perspective. Certain long, certain shorts, and you're done. But there's always the possible added value of those managers in the long short space that can market time that they will be in beta when it's appropriate to be in beta, and then kind of cut those losses, start shorting some more. How do you think about that? Because do you penalize them based on how much beta exposure they have contemporaneously? Or do you just you, you look at their back test or their track record and say, on average, you've been 0.3 and therefore we're not going to pay you for that or we don't want your share? Like, how do you deal with that type of manager, which I'm sure exists on the yeah, long I short mean, side? To be quite honest, we deal with those types of managers by straying away from those types of managers. They may have embedded kind of idiosyncratic alpha, but it's just too difficult to know how much they're swinging around their net. And if we want to have a strategy that's going to capitalize on where betas are going, we much rather do that in the global macro space, where that's what they live and breathe, as opposed to the long short equity space. And they're focused on individual companies. The same thing on the long short credit side, individual bonds. So that's why we you know, tend to stay away from the long short equity directional you know, side, long short credit directional side, and rather find macro managers that can do that in a better manner because that's all they do. It's just funny because my experience, at least with advisors and smaller institutions, is that long short equity is actually by far the most preferred alt vehicle. And I think it's just because they're able to tell the stories. They're in an asset class that everybody feels comfortable with. But the reality is it's the hardest way to make money. Just like just purely market timing a single market is actually extremely hard. The reason that CTAs and macro funds have a chance is because they are timing dozens of markets in a wide variety of different areas, commodities and currencies and equities and rates and bonds and credit, et cetera. And the hit rate's really small, but because you're so diversified and you're taking bets so frequently, at least you've got a shot. But trying to time a single equity index based on fundamental exposures or some other is just a really hard problem. I also think that it's not that it can't kind of disaggregate. You can quantitatively or qualitatively disaggregate market beta from stock picking ability. You know, you can do it using simple regressions by progressing on squared returns and residuals, et cetera. There's things to do to disaggregate them. It's just that people don't do them. They're hard. What is the frequency at which you run the regressions? If they're trading daily versus rebalancing weekly or monthly or whatever, or idiosyncratically, it gets, it just gets complicated. So I, I like that you, as a general rule, as a firm, de-emphasize the long shorts and sort of prioritize. The market neutral at least adheres to that alpha beta separation framework that I think we're all trying to get closer to. And even market neutral, it's tough because if you're emerging markets, market neutral, right? There's some countries where you can't short. So you need to take on some sort of basis risk there on the short side, or you may find yourself saying, Hey, there's this massive valuation spread between S and P and, and EM. I rather just use kind of like a dirty hedge on being, you know, short S&P. And then, you know, how has that worked out up until kind of, you know, this point here? That's tough too. So, I mean, to do market neutral really well and to reduce that basis risk, you need to have a deep 
and liquid market across the long side and the short side so you can match up all those different factor risks. Because yeah. uh, otherwise, yeah. you know, well, you're, you're taking on, you know, taking on basis and sometimes it works in your favor, sometimes not. When it doesn't, investors have a tough time sticking around. You mean it's and not also- simple and commoditizable? Wow, that's that's. <laughs> <convenient>. <laughs> I mean, look, I, the only market neutral funds that I see actually do a decent job of being beta neutral are the systematic types, beta neutral, and that you know, if you do it well, you are going to be very different, as we've seen over the last five years for a lot of these guys. The vast majority of kind of fundamental based uh, market neutral managers, when I've measured their beta, they're always running hot. They're always running between 0.1 to 0.3 correlation to the S&P or in Canada, the S&P TSX 60, which is problematic. Again, that's what they have to do in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And when you see something, for example, like AQR doing the correct implementation that they were paid for to have to be beta neutral and go through the drawdown that they've gone through, <laughs> is that a failure or is that a success from the perspective of proper execution of a market neutral strategy? They certainly are non-correlated. Yeah, I mean, everyone likes to say non-correlated and I want a negative correlation, but you need to go through some long periods of pain for it to eventually pay off. And I mean, I think if folks stuck around with Cliff and AQR, they're very happy you know, this year. Mm-hmm. I think if folks mm-hmm. have stuck with trend following and even kind of beta one commodities or long ball in some sort of uh, you know fashion, they were very happy in 2020. You know, this year they're fairly happy as well. Not so much in the long ball space this year, since the implied markets really haven't moved as much as you would think based on where we are today in terms of the negative prints in the market. But however, you can't time this stuff. And that's why you need to set your strategic allocation across those three components, first responders, second responders, diversifiers, and just rebalance as those things pay off. Just slap on a 200-day moving average on that uh, pure alpha, man. (laughs) <laughs> problem solved, right? Not advice. <laughs> well, well, you know what? The pushback on the long vol side is it's a negative bleed. And yeah. it's like, well, yeah, if you hold it in perpetuity, it's a negative bleed. But once it pays off, if you rebalance to buy beta one, or if you rebalance, say, into trend following or diversifiers, then you're going to do pretty decent there, I think. <laughs> the beautiful rebalancing premium that nobody talks about, right? In isolation, it's a problem, but you know, once you include it in a multi-strat, it adds tremendous value. So, so our clients, okay, go you guys. Just la- last question with regards because yeah. I want to kind of finish up on market neutral. You know, the idea of hedge funds, alternatives, whatever you want to call them, has always been. There's another uh, moniker here, which is the absolute return label. And so the belief here is that if you're an absolute return fund, you better be providing returns in every single year in good and bad markets. Was it Ed Thorpe that came up with the first hedge fund and that was what he was trying to do? I believe he accomplished that for most of his career. Now we're looking at market neutral funds like these where we do not expect a positive turn every single year. We expect it to meander and provide a positive expectancy over long periods of time, but no guarantee of positive returns any given year. Are there absolute return managers out there that can accomplish that? Or are we now in the realm of it's just another risk factor that we're allocating to with drawdowns and, and bull markets? It's strategy by strategy. And you're not going to invest in one quote unquote, you know, absolute return manager. And again, that's not even like a term that I would use within asset allocation. It's that what is your correlation profile? Obviously, that can be conditional to what the market is doing, but absolute return standalone 
it gets back to what I said before. If it doesn't keep up with beta one over a long time, you know, bull market. And then when you do get those drawdowns, if it picks up that correlation, then people are just not happy there. They're not happy. Mm -hmm. And that's, if you want to be able to use the right types of hedge funds in your asset allocation, it's tough for them to stand alone. You need to package it up, I think, with some sort of beta, such as equities or rates, to use that as a complement to your traditional types of asset allocation buckets, such as global equities or U.S. equities or your Barclays AG, your investment-grade credit book. Because again, otherwise, you go to the board every single quarter and market's up, market's up. Oh, why is this thing only up You know, 3% annualized over the past five years? Well, you know, it has a beta zero, the correlation is really low. If we married it with some sort of equity futures or interest rate futures, then it would shoot the lights out relative to active long-only equities or some sort of Barclays AG or you know, active long-only fixed income. If you really want to have a program that's going to withstand the test of time, that's really not the only way to do it, but the path that can keep you in the game. Okay. Well, let's blue sky this, Jason, because we've sort of been orbiting the more normative discussion, what are plans and funds currently doing? And I think it's fun to sort of blue sky what they could do if they decided to liberate themselves from sort of the the tyranny of peer evaluations and or sort of benchmarking and focus exclusively on trying to meet plan or fund objectives with the highest probability of success. So just unburden themselves from peer comparisons, allow tracking error to whatever extent is required in order to maximize the chances of, of hitting fund objectives. So if we allow ourselves to kind of blue sky, what does that look like for you, do you think, in the modern, given all of the available modern options? This industry in general, people are massively focused on benchmarks, on what others to the left and to the right are doing as opposed to maybe sitting down and having a pure focus on your own institution, on your own beliefs, and what you believe you need to do to accomplish your goals. Instead of worrying about what your peers are doing, where you show up in the league tables, or anything along those lines. I have a bias, or my philosophy on investing is it's an absolute return, absolute risk game. It's not relative return, you know, relative risk. But everyone likes to compare themselves to others. It's just kind of human nature. And am I doing better or am I doing worse? And what do I need to do in order to do better? But again, better is in the context of the goals and objectives of what you need to achieve for your own idiosyncratic, specific kind of institution. It shouldn't be based on what someone else is doing. I sort of saw this in the context of corporate pensions, where the thinking there is you want to eventually get rid of this liability that you have to your pensioners. And to do that, you need to get to at least 100% funded status. And then as you get closer and closer to that 100% or go north of that, to immunize your assets against your liability, you buy the things that are used to measure your liability. So in the Mm -hmm. corporate pension world, those are AA investment grade corporate bonds. However, it wasn't always that way. It wasn't until I believe like the early 2000s where they shift, I believe, the discount rate and corporate pensions from using 30-year treasuries to using a corporate bond index, a corporate bond universe. And that's because the treasury stopped issuing 30-year treasuries for, I think it was only like four or five years that they stopped issuing those. So then it got shifted to this you know, corporate bond discount rate. So now when I think about, okay, 
eventually I'm just going to load my whole portfolio into investment grade corporate bonds or a mix of investment grade corporate bonds and, and treasuries. I just look at that simply and say, well, what's my risk of that asset portfolio now? It's like I reduced my tracking error or volatility or fundus status volatility relative to my accounting liability. But those dollars that I owe my pensioners, those are absolute dollars. I owe them regardless of where credit spreads go and where interest rates go. It does not matter where spreads and interest rates go based on what I've already promised to Mr. and Mrs. Joe and Jane Smith, pensioner from XYZ Corporation. You look at that portfolio and you're taking massive credit spread risk. And what is credit spread risk? Credit spread risk is diet equity risk. So you're still you know, taking some form of equity risk. You're concentrated in pretty much one risk, and that's credit spreads. So then when credit spreads blow out, your discount rate is going to decrease. Because if you have a downgrade or a default in one of those corporate bonds, then that bond gets kicked out of your universe for the way that your liability is measured. And then your discount rate goes down and your liability goes up. Meanwhile, you hold this bond in your asset portfolio that you're taking a hit on, whether a mark-to-market hit, which I think a lot of folks would argue, well, these things have a mark-to-market hit, but they never go to zero. Just like, oh, that's been true for you know since the GFC. However, these companies do go to zero. And it only really probably takes one of those companies to go to zero or have a low recovery value for those portfolios to take a huge, massive hit. On the financial statements, it looks like your hedge relative to your accounting liability, but then on the economic liability, you're taking the pain in those bonds. And then before you know it, you don't have the dollars that you thought you had to send out the door to your pensioners. Well, yeah. I mean, all of the legislation that's come down the pipe in the last two decades has been oriented to benefiting the plan sponsor, not the beneficiaries. This is clearly a policy that they introduced to lower the value of the accounting liability for the plan sponsor, but that does not in any way benefit the beneficiaries of the plan. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it meets yeah. the accounting standards, but does not meet the ultimate goal of what this whole process has been created for. This well, is the yeah. problem. And, and we're also supposed to be fiduciaries, right? We're supposed to be fiduciaries. And when I think about being a fiduciary, I think about absolute risk. How am I going to lose absolute dollars, not relative dollars? Because mm-hmm. like they say, you can't eat sharp ratio, can't eat fundus status volatility either. Right. And ultimately, you want to be able to make sure you have those dollars to send to your pensioners. Because the, the these, are, these, these are the families, right? The families that we're serving. Yeah. Now, but how could this happen? Well, look at, my, look at my sta- uh, statements. They're pristine. Yeah, but I'm not getting my money. What's going on here? Like This is how what they can hide behind, right? So I guess the question is, it used to be very easy when you were doing it with treasuries. Now you're doing it with corporate bonds. We're having to go up the complexity scale. And so how has that been going? It's tough because, you know, inertia, peer risk, career risk is obviously a real thing. And you rather do a little bit better than your peers on the downside than do much better kind of over a longer period of time. You never get fired for doing a conventional thing. It's the bane of my existence in this industry because there's just so much groupthink and so much herding mentality. It's really tough to, not fighting against that, but you need to use education to help folks think about it from a different perspective. However, most of the industry is centered around benchmarks and tracking error and peer risk and career risk 
as opposed to absolute risk and really having that true fiduciary mindset. And a lot of firms will slice and dice the world up into like our public pension practice, our endowment and foundation practice, our corporate pension practice. Everyone at the end of the day is trying to do the same thing. Everyone is like pretty much trying to put up a six to 8% return with as little risk as possible. Now, again, that comes down to like labels and then throwing out these more optics types of things like fund to status volatility. Like, I'm not sure exactly what it would be in the ENF space, but I guess if I break down the different areas of institutional investors, public plans, you know, politics are, are involved a lot there. Corporate plans, financial statements are involved a lot. High net worth kind of individual investors, behavioral biases and psychological biases. And then on the ENF side, I think, you know, social issues and things of that nature are big hurdles. I think every institution caters to sort of their own constituent base and what drives their incentives. And then if we were to kind of strip away all of that and look to the true end investor, the true beneficiary, I think we naturally kind of come to this spot of, hey, how do I just do this in the best absolute return, absolute risk type of manner? And strip so away I, all these other kind of biases and, and these external types of factors. I think we've got to let many of the largest institutions off the hook a little bit too, because the fact is once you get up into the multi tens of billions or multi hundreds of billions of dollars, you've got too much capital to be able to deploy to the vast majority of diversifiers. You're kind of stuck with betas to equities and duration and their derivatives like credit. Definitely. So what's always confused me though, is how the small plans and the small institutions who actually have the flexibility to pursue more of an absolute return policy and are not so large that they'll consume all of the available bandwidth and some of these true diversifiers still fail to take advantage of this type of mandate flexibility. Why do you think that is? You think they just, you know, they're sort of sucked into the gravity of trying to emulate their larger peers? Well, I wouldn't say it's a, on a larger side, you have these staffs that are very sophisticated. So they can go into these most sophisticated types of strategies and eat up all the capacity. And at the same time, they command better terms and, and fees. Where when you're the small fish in the pond and you're going in there and you can write an X dollar amount of check as opposed to, you know, whatever, 10X, it's tough for you to get that kind of, I would just call it pure alpha off the bat by having a lower fee load. So then they're starting from a position automatically on the front end, whatever that might be, 50 to 100 basis points. They need to make that up by finding managers that are also put up, you know, good alpha and that don't want to grow to the moon. But what happens, the good managers, they see capital, capital comes in, and then larger checks come in, and the fees go down. And the only way for those investors to get lower fees is to write those bigger checks. The smaller investors can't necessarily do that, at least on the front end. Now, are there opportunities that are out there, arbitrage opportunities and different strategies where it's worth the higher fees? I think so. At the same time, when you're dealing with small managers that have limited capacity, you need to find lots of those small managers that have limited capacity. And if you're managing some sort of larger pool of institutional capital, then pretty soon you have a lot of capital that needs to be put to work again. You can consolidate a bunch of smaller plans, but then it becomes a larger pool of capital. 
And then, you know, before you know it, you can't capitalize on those smaller types of niche opportunities. However, you can still now drive down fees for funds that start off with great alpha opportunities. And over time, as they grow, that alpha tends to get degraded. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of need to move on to the next thing or further diversify. But how much can you diversify until you just end up looking like the index or you really don't really have enough active risk. Well, that's it. I mean, that's the issue with these very large pensions. You just described the evolution of what ends up happening is billions and billions of dollars in money that needs to get deployed ends up having very little alpha or very little of that absolute bucket. And they have to just go to plain betas, private credit, private equity, even on the idea of risk parity, right? That you have some equities, you have some fixed income and you have some inflation assets. Those inflation assets become much more complicated to use commodities because of the CFTC limits that you have on assets. So you end up tilting towards tips, which is a way of protecting against a type of inflation, but not all types of inflation. So as you get bigger, you're just limited to betas and you're even limited to being able to implement a robust risk parity portfolio that'll get you there. That's closer, right? And so it doesn't matter that you have purchase power. It doesn't matter that you can get lower fees. You're just not going to get that big slice of 33% risk mitigation strategies. There is a sweet spot there of managers that have enough purchasing power. They can negotiate fees and have those big slices of alternative fees of the RMI and so on. And yet we're not seeing that sweet spot in AUM take advantage of, that, of those sleeves. As you consult with people, you're trying to push this agenda, I imagine, trying to get them to open their eyes to this, right? And also think about these smaller institutions. The alpha opportunities might be more abundant for them, but they're smaller and they don't have large staffs that can really uncover all these opportunities. It's a search problem for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so hence they might hire an OCIO or some sort of, you know, consultant to do that. That also depends on how big that consultant ends up getting. And then what the uptake is, of all those underlying strategies that consultant or OCIO might cover. Where if you're operating in a discretionary manner, you can act on these things relatively quickly. But if you're acting in a non-discretionary manner, it takes a bit longer to implement a whole total portfolio strategy. Because some of these institutions are set up where they meet quarterly and they need to approve every single investment that goes into the book. And it's very tough to get 10 line items all approved at once. That would probably take, you know, for some setups, a year or, or more than a year. Whereas if that was shifted more to a discretionary type of implementation, that could maybe be implemented, you know, right away. But then again, you're paying higher fees for that type of implementation. So the end investor needs to weigh, hey, am I getting the execution and a portfolio that's up and running much quicker that's going to that's gonna put me in a better position? where I can outsource that decision-making process and all like the legal process, the operations, the investment due, due diligence, and I get good bang for my buck? Or am I better off sort of maintaining this strategic asset allocation and moving things on the fringe every now and then, hiring this manager, hiring that manager? Only those institutions you know, can decide. Of course, we would have our, our own biases because this is what we do. And there's some areas where that might be more appropriate than others. Maybe on long-only equities, long-only fixed income, it doesn't really make sense to outsource that to some sort of discretionary manager. But perhaps on the you know, hedge fund side, risk mitigating strategies, private investments, perhaps that makes more sense because the complexity there is so much higher. All the operational things you need to do there, all the legal things you need to do there, perhaps that's worth it. And then some people might think, you know, none of it is worth it. Others might think everything is worth it. It's a real catch-22. I hear, I hear what you're saying totally. You've got a small institution that has the 
mandate flexibility and portfolio agility to be able to pursue a wide variety of different options, but they don't have the same level of resources or or in-house technical expertise to be able to vet all of the different opportunity sets. So then what do you do? Well, you pursue economies of scale. You consolidate up to to an OCIO or a consultant. But then now you're choosing from a limited list of funds that have been already vetted by the consultant and are also getting allocations from all of the other different clients that have similar objectives and are pursuing similar types of strategies. And so you quickly run up against the capacity constraints. And then you've got these ultra-large institutions, which it seems like it's just absurd if you've got 50, 60, or $100 billion for you to allocate a couple billion dollars to diversifiers. These are like almost glamour allocations which are sort of justifying <laughs> an alts team without actually having making any difference for, to the risk budget or risk profile of the overall plan or institution. So it's a real quagmire. I, I absolutely see the problem. It does seem like there's an opportunity in the small to medium-sized plan space to pursue very different objectives in sort of a non-scaled OCIO context that allows them to pursue these types of opportunities without consuming all the bandwidth and sort of pricing themselves out of the market that's going to be most accretive. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Definitely. And we pride ourselves on, we don't run sort of any products here, right? Every single client that we have on the OCIO side is 100% bespoke. At the same time, and I always go back to what Tony Deaton said on Grant Williams' podcast, because it was just so brilliant, so simple, but so eloquent and brilliant. Do you want to be an investment practice or do you want to be an investment business? One isn't necessarily better Mm -hmm. than the other. In the investment business, you give the clients what they want. In investment practice, you give the clients what they need. Yeah. And I always think in my head, you know, if I were a client and I'm hiring someone, OCIO, you know, consultant, whatever it might be, I'm hiring them because I need their help. I need their advice. I need their guidance. I can't do this all on my own. I might have my own biases, my own thoughts and opinions. However, if I really could do it on my own, then I would do it on my own. So then when you go somewhere, being an OCIL or a consultant, do you only want to implement what your client says they want? If you're doing that, then why are they even coming to you for advice if you're not going to give them your true unvarnished opinion? Or you give them you know, what they need because you believe that's in their best interest to meet their goals and objectives. And again, one versus the other isn't necessarily better than the other. You just need to decide who you are. An investment business to me is more of a scale game and quantity. Investment practice to me is more of a a quality type of setup. But you know, you're just moving the same challenges upstream one, one notch or one level. So if you're a manager of a small to medium-sized plan, then, or institution, endowment, foundation, et cetera, well, you've either got some experience in the business, which means that you bring your own biases to the table. So you're going to go out and choose the criteria that you're going to use to choose an OCIO is going to be aligned with your own basic set of beliefs and biases, in which case you're just going to hire an OCIO that is going to express your own internal views anyway. And if you don't have any expertise or experience in the business, what criteria or qualifications do you have in order to choose an effective OCIO in the first place? So it, it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is agency effects and lack of criteria to be able to make good choices all the way along. It's kind of turtles all the way through. So let's put a pin in that as kind of a very a hard problem that's kind of unsolved. 
maybe move back a little bit more into the into the practical side. One thing that I always am curious about, and I've talked about this question with other people in similar roles to yourself who advise on institutional plans, but who also understand the idea of diversification the way that we all espouse it. They have risk parity, global risk parity mandates, somehow in the alts bucket. Mm-hmm. Right? And yet, to me, that is kind of the foundational core to any portfolio. Like if you if you espouse the idea of diversification as pursuing diversity and pursuing balance, that's kind of where you start. And then as you add elements to the portfolio, you're continuing to just add new diversifiers and continue to add them in a way that preserves maximum portfolio balance. So walk me through why many consulting arms and many institutions think about risk parity as as an alt, and then how we can begin to change people's minds and bring them more on track. Yeah, I mean, at least within our group, and Makita, we don't think of risk parity as a, as a line item. It is a strategic asset allocation. It's a framework to invest your strategic asset allocation. Now, I've definitely seen risk parity strategies as sort of you know line items broken out separately across asset allocations. I think that just comes down to it's just so different than the conventional way of thinking about how to do your strategic asset allocation. And it gets back to like, what is the risk neutral position of where you sit? at least from an optics standpoint. Again, I go back to the kind of corporate pension plan example. Your risk neutral position is to be 100% investment grade corporate bonds so you can minimize that fund status volatility and lower that tracking error. Yeah, no, you're right. And we've got to sort of separate that out because of course you're going to have people that view the liability in a very different way. So from an actuarial Mm -hmm. standpoint, I totally get that. But if you're thinking about a foundation or an endowment or maybe even a public plan where you're not really held to liabilities, but rather you're held to a kind of a expected target return. How did these guys think about it and why haven't they been able to kind of get closer to risk parity as, a, as the core? Within ENF, their risk neutral position, right, is their spending plus inflation. So there you probably have more latitude to be a bit more intellectually curious about your strategic asset allocation. On the public plan side, their discount rate is pretty much using whatever their asset allocation is. So, yeah, but I mean, you, it, can, you can meet a target discount rate with a risk parity portfolio, too, yeah, with an yeah, appropriate yeah. level of leverage. It, so, it, I don't it's, think it's that's leverage, right? Cheap. You just said it. It's leverage, right? People are <laughs> adverse to the type of leverage that is used in risk parity, even okay, though they're exposed key, right? to similar types buy of leverage. leverage everywhere, right? Exactly. exactly. Levered, yeah. levered bonds. You're buying levered bonds. Why would we lever into yeah. bonds right now? That idea is what's really got. That's I think it's it's the ultimate. Yeah. Well, risk parity is just equities combined with lever bonds. That's right. I don't even know like where that came from because ever since I learned about risk parity, I always thought about it in terms of rates. You know, credit, you know where equities, I think commodities. You know where I think it came from. I was thinking about this. Remember that paper that Cliff out of all people wrote, or maybe it wasn't Cliff, it was AQR. They talked about 60-40 portfolio equities, and they levered the 60-40 in order to match the volatility of equities and showed how it, it performed. It outperformed equities with lower drawdowns, right? That one was a simple enough paper that I think went viral. And then he also had his risk parity funds. And I, just, I think it just got conflated. No, I, think I think it was just- Most people articulate risk parity. They sort of go from a 60-40 portfolio. If you use risk goggles, it's 95% equity risk and 5% 
rates risk or duration risk. And you communicate it this way because it's a really simple way to articulate the concept. And then I think people just don't move on to the fact that besides the fact that you want to hold everything in proper balance so that their unique personalities can show through, you also want to hold diverse investments. And that includes commodities and break-evens and factor exposures, et cetera. So they just kind of stop too early in the presentation or in the talk or in the paper. We're all guilty of that, by the way, right? It's, oh, yeah, it's we've this, done it. this problem of being like, how Bridgewater do we keep it as simple as possible, right? Yeah. Well, you get these two asset classes or, you know, you have, what was the example I used to use, the scale, right? You have two spheres that you put on a scale and when you think they're going to weigh the same thing, but because they look the same, but in reality, one's made out of metal, one's made out of wood. That's equities. This is bonds. You can't do a scale analogy with a third scale. That becomes that now you, you know, break minds. So maybe, yeah, maybe it's a combination of all those things. Could be too, you know, commodities are maybe a bit tougher for investors to grasp since it's in the futures market, right? And people get scared when you start talking about futures. And they, I think commodities, rightfully so, when they look at any single commodity, it doesn't seem to have a positive risk premium. So you're getting paid on bonds, you're getting paid dividends on equities. What are you getting in commodities? You know, we talked a lot about our optimal commodities paper, where Adam went through the different sectors and securities and how do you weight them appropriately and then rebalance to actually manufacture a positive risk premium in the commodity space, right? Ended up being something like 4%, Adam. I can't remember what the actual number was, yeah, but just, it, it, just it, rivaled, yeah. it rivaled the equity risk premium, not by any sort of carry strategy, but simply from rebalancing. So it rivaled the global equity risk premium, yeah, not the US right. one, which not is an outlier, US, but the global which is, yeah. which is impossible to beat. So I think that one is also a problematic thing. There's no value who don't commodities, right? So it, it requires much more education, I guess, to not only introduce that third leg of the stool, but then explain all these other layers as to why it's important to own them and why there's a positive risk premium long term and so on. And it gets back to, you know, the, I think the bane of our existence, right? The old tracking your benchmark risk thing. Well, if I'm doing risk parity, what's my benchmark? Well, it's the economic value of your liabilities. That's your benchmark. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's what I argue. Like, what is the absolute return that you need to achieve in order to meet your objective? And how can you do that in a least risky fashion? So there's another pension plan that we're talking to that is literally just levered equities. And they've been levered equities for a decade or more. A few of them are, have woken up to like, whoa, this is a lot of risk. Maybe we should start thinking about this risk parity approach. And they're, they're starting to add it as a sleeve, right? As a slice, a 5% yeah. sleeve. Their issue is we are incentivized by performance and beating our benchmark. Show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Well, that's right? a governance yeah, yeah, yeah. challenge. But, but then right? the, I, what I say to them is, Listen, just lever it up to you're obviously willing to take 25% ball. Why don't you leave a risk parity 25%? Well, no, that's too risky. No, yeah. it's not. It's less risk than what you're actually taking. It's actually less. You seem to be comfortable with leverage. Yes, this is going to have to be more leverage because we're more diversified, but the volatility is going to be the same by definition due to diversification. You're going to have less tail events, so on and so forth. They can't process that. You show me the return, the risk profile you're willing to take. You can do that here. And I think you almost have there. to, you know, blind blind investors to what the actual outcomes have been. I did this exercise a while back, and I created my own risk parity portfolio using indices, and then I compared over what percentage of rolling one, three, five, seven, ten year periods does a risk parity portfolio 
levered to the same vol as a global 6040, how often does that outperform, you know, a global 6040? Even over one year periods, you're above 50%. Then once you get out to three, you know, five, seven, 10, when you get out to like 10 year periods, it's close to 100% where you're outperforming a 6040 portfolio. However, the path is very different. So mm-hmm. it gets back to that hurting mentality and that you're looking left, you're looking right, you're looking at the league tables, you're looking at where you stack up against your peers. And if you're not keeping up in the up markets, then you're just like, oh, I, I can't withstand that. Like, how do I justify that to my boss when my boss's boss is telling them how great their portfolio is doing and we're not keeping up? Because these big events, they happen more often than I think people give them credit for. But when these big events happen, folks tend to forget them really quickly. Now, is the gig up there? I don't know. You know, Maybe, maybe not. To be quite honest, I don't really think it matters because even if you brought this risk parity portfolio back in time, like I just said, you're still outperforming a plain vanilla global 60-40 portfolio. So, okay, let's take it back to the, I'm a small foundation. I only care about my absolute requirements. And so you're going to put together the ideal portfolio for me. What does that look like? Is it risk parity with alpha overlay? Like yeah, what? I mean, if we were to strip away sort of all biases and, and investor or, or you know, someone's coming in, if I had a blank sheet of paper, yeah, I think about the world in terms of beta, alpha, long vol, and then sort of niche. So what's your best beta? Some form of risk parity. Alpha, beta neutral, market neutral types of managers, long vol, components of trend following, outright long vol, and then niche is kind of like things that are just episodic, really different. It doesn't really fit into anywhere, probably a liquid, but you say, you know, what is your return objective? How much do I have to lever a risk parity portfolio to meet that return objective? And then do you want some sort of alpha, you know, on top of that? And so it's really risk parity plus that RMS portfolio that I described before, first responders, second responders, and diversifiers. And I think you always need some sort of component of that long ball and trend following because it really bails you out during the Q1s of 2020, during the Q4s of 2018, during fall of 2011, the GFC. So you can't time these things. You need to set your strategic asset allocation on your beta side and some form of risk parity. And then you need to set your sort of wonky alpha oriented downside type of protection stuff with that, you know, a third first responders, third, second responders, a third diversifiers. And that would would be my going in kind of framework. And then on the fringe, you can tweak that based on different sort of needs and circumstances. So that's certainly the way we think about it here as well. The risk parity and then return stack of true diversifiers. Because I think when you think about what the two major blind spots that I see from risk parity, and you see it over and over again, is it does a pretty good job during most economic regimes, but there is a, a, an illiquidity. There should be, you know, have you seen that like high inflation, low inflation axes, and then high growth, low growth axes, and you split into quadrants. I think there's a third level there, which is abundant liquidity and yeah, liquidity yeah. shocks, right? When there's abundant yeah. liquidity, it turns out that everything goes up together, right? So you're yeah. getting this excess return than you should. It's not three pistons going in different directions. It's all of a sudden everything's going up. And the same is true in those moments like the last week of um, March 2020, where in fact, the first week of the correction, risk parity was doing really well. It was positive. Markets had gone down 15%. Treasuries were up double digits. Gold was up single digits and everything else was down. But then there was that moment of, oh my God, everybody prefers cash. You have that liquidity shock. So that's where the long volatility side, those big convexity trades come in to fill that gap. I see how important that is to filling the risk parity gap. 
The other risk that I think is kind of the undiversifiable risk that you get paid for in order to get a positive return is that central policy risk, right? That central governor, uh, the Fed governor's black box in his head, that wetware, where from one day to the next, they say something wrong, something stupid, or, or just raise rates verbally more than what people expected. And it's just, we haven't found a strong way of reliably mitigating against that risk. How have you thought about that problem? I think that long ball piece is kind of exactly what you said. That's where you. Yeah. But, but the long ball piece isn't during liquidity events. It, the yeah. long ball didn't help you in August of, also, of 2018. We should also differentiate, right? right? Like, I think. No. I, I think didn't help you do the, the 94 um, massacre. Anyway, so on. Sorry, Adam. It's yeah. key to sort of say inflation and growth are true risks, they're diversifiable risks. So if you assemble a portfolio thoughtfully, you can mostly eliminate or dramatically reduce the amount of variance in the portfolio that is due to changes in expectations around those both those axes. The liquidity risk premium sentiment kind of risk, which is non-diversifiable, as you say, that is a risk that you're rewarded. That's why you earn a premium on the risk parity portfolio or one of the reasons you earn a premium on the risk parity portfolio because there's no costless way to hedge that risk, okay? Costless being being critical. In other words, you need to pay a little bit, in theory, to hedge that risk. And then there's the Fed policy risk, which I like to frame as a shift in expectations about future cash rates. So if future cash rates are shocked higher, then investors have a higher incentive to move out of risky assets into cash, all things equal. So you need to lower the price of asset risky assets to the point where the expected premium that investors are going to earn on that is high enough to continue to entice investors out of cash when cash investments become more attractive because the Fed says we're going to raise rates. So those latter two things are, are risks that cannot be diversified away. And accepting those risks is why you earn a premium, a long-term premium on the global risk parity portfolio. And you can hedge those risks, but we shouldn't expect to be able to hedge those risks costlessly. For free, right? yeah. For free. So this is where I, I think it's really, I'm curious to explore. So you've got this kind of first responder portfolio that is kind of meant to hedge against both that sentiment slash liquidity risk, which is kind of that long vol, strategic long vol exposure, and then more of a sustained series of shocks to expected future cash rates, which is where you get these longer drawn out kind of bear market type environments like we're currently. And then you've got more of this absolute return sleep. So let's dig into how you think about constructing the most efficient first responders sleep. Yeah, I think efficiency there, again, is when you think about what you're trying to hedge and then what type of scenario you're trying to hedge for. Like, are you trying to hedge for just downside equity risk? Or are you just trying to get long vol exposure across the board? I think we would err more on the side of, again, depending on the client, but say someone came in and said, hey, we have no biases. We want long vol exposure multi-asset class because we just don't know where the event will come from. However, normally these events have cascading effects on various asset classes. Now, we haven't really seen it in the FX markets for quite some time up until this point, but 
would you say maybe you know five ten years ago would you want FX vol exposure? Probably not. But now would you? Absolutely. Would you want rate exposure? You know, in the past like ten years on the long vol side, I mean, probably hasn't done too much for you. But this year, you know, it is, especially on the trend side. Within that long vol side, you can structure in a way to more hedge for that immediate, quick, and deep drawdown. Or you can implement those strategies for more longer drawn out periods and buy options that are two years out as opposed to one month out or one week out. So there's lots of different ways to implement that. Again, what is the expiration of those options? And then what markets are you playing in? And we would diversify across time as well as velocity of that event. I think you do something similar in the trend following space. Are you more shorter term trend, medium term, or longer term? And then how are you expressing the different asset classes that trend is investing in? Are you kind of equity heavy because equities tend to be the, well, not tend to be, are the most deep and liquid markets? And they've done quite well for quite some time. You know, maybe you have some trend following managers that have gravitated more toward equities and equities have been a big part of their book. But if you rolled it to this year with that type of exposure, you're not doing as well as the guys that have taken a more true kind of equal risk allocation across the board. So it gets back to, again, it's client dependent on what they're trying to hedge for relative to whatever else is in their plan. And then how much do they think about investing in terms of absolute return, absolute risk versus relative return, you know, relative risk. Because right. you uh, have to hedge different risks. In, yeah, in one exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, on the, again, going back to the pension plan example, you could hedge against some sort of major credit event, but you're going to realize that event in the equity markets as well. These things have cascading effects. So why not try to eke out as much diversification as you can across all those different types of risks because you just don't know where they're going to come from. Well, it's, it's interesting because when we talk part. about when we talk about that tail protection of that first responders part, it's a very different amount of first responders that you need when you're dealing with a risk parity portfolio, which tends to have more of a normal distribution, much thinner left tails. People think about tail protection when they're dealing with a 60, 40, 80, 20. Yeah. And when you're having that conversation, you're saying, yeah, so this is how big your tail protection is. So how much protection do you want? Right? You want to get against half of your 50% loss in 2008 scenario? Okay, well, this is how big your first responder allocation needs to be. And that means that there's going to be a massive amount of drag sometimes that requires you to, to truly understand and have a stick to itness, right? And this is, again, why I like the risk parity side, because you for risk parity, for, for anything that's diversified and approximate a Gaussian distribution, you're going to have a much easier time allocating the small sliver to the first responders portfolio, right? And it frees you up intellectually, where if you're going in strategic asset allocation is a risk parity type portfolio, you're not automatically thinking about downside equity risk in first responders. You're thinking about multi-asset class, Well, I think you're thinking about hedging against growth risk and hedging against inflation risk and major inflation shocks or major growth shocks that are mispriced by the market. Also, policy risk. Maybe you're hedging in the euro dollar market. I think growth risk, you can effectively hedge exclusively with equities, because if you're going to have a financial crisis that's going to dramatically hit growth, you're also going to get a downward spiral in commodities. So I just think that you can sort of apply the risk parity framework of growth and inflation, liquidity risk and policy risk in the same way to your first responders basket, maybe as a place to start. 
and in the case that nothing works out, <laughs> right? What about end of days type of scenario where we're still kind of in the metaverse here talking to one another and the world hasn't blown up, but institutions really don't carry that much cash. Adam, that's probably the answer there. It's to carry enough cash to get you through whatever event that you need to get through. Now, are you going to carry more than one year's worth of cash based on your outflows that, that you have? Probably not. But what is that cash number? Is it three months worth of your liability? Is it six months? Is it one year? Does it change based on where you, you think we might be in some sort of cycle? market valuation? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the answer is it's not zero or it's not like 50 basis points. Perhaps cash allocations, if you're gaining so much efficiency from risk parity and from thinking about the alpha component or maybe what you guys would call the stacking component of RMS and first responders, second responders, diversifiers, if you're getting that much more bang for your buck, then why not carry a little bit more cash on your balance sheet for that scenario where like nothing's working? Yeah, I'm not averse to that. Again, just all of these in theory, these all have costs. There's a cost to carrying more cash. It's an opportunity cost. There's a cost in theory to being long ball. In the end, if you hedge out all the risks, you effectively should be earning the risk-free rate, right? <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a tricky kind of situation. I actually be curious how you sort of think about this, but the more I've thought about standard trend following, just moving into trend following for a minute, the shorter the trends that you're looking to capture the more the, the strategy should resemble the profile or character of a diversified long straddle portfolio. You're capturing almost none of the drift of the underlying assets, and you're effectively just buying long straddles and hoping that those long straddles are mispriced because there's more outliers in the distribution than are priced by the straddles. Is kind of what you're buying when you buy sort of more shorter term trend strategies, right? And when you're buying longer term trend, trend strategies, you're buying more strangles mm-hmm. and exactly. you get the, you're also benefiting to some extent from the drift in markets that mm-hmm. have a long term drift. So mm-hmm. if you look at kind of the long term beta of a long term trend strategy, typically it'll have kind of a, 0.2, 0.3 beta to equities, a 0.3, 0.4 equity to beta to duration. You're on average, because these markets do have drift, it, they're going to be in an upward trend more often than they're in a downward trend. And you're going to get that sort of long-term average. It has a high correlation to risk parity. Yeah. The longer the trend The longer the trend, the more, yeah. the more it looks like a risk parity, parity portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and in that trend following, we tend to like the... Once we blend together the strategies that we have, we end up being a medium, call it like six month type of look back there. Because within first responders, we have those, we're diversified there again across time, but those are more meant to kick in during the Q1s or 2020s, during those short, steep drawdowns or the gap risk. That's the easier way to say it, during the gap risk. And then the trend is meant for, hey, is this going to persist? You know what was interesting? I was just the next sleeve is that um, was your third sleeve again? Your diversifiers. There were diversifiers. You know, we run a systematic macro strategy that is multifaceted, and we wanted to take a look at this concept of how trend is the savior. It's the one that's going to be there. I was looking at the carry sleeve, for example, that counterintuitively did significantly better than trend in March 2020. It often does. It, it has done a pretty good job this year as well. So, you know, I wonder, 
how much of that third sleeve ends up becoming the second responder as well, right? Kind of focusing on the systematic global macro and the like. Like, I kind of almost feel like trend and systematic global macro are in the same realm there. And um, yeah, like you know, this idea that trend is the only thing that is, that is that's the way we think about it. Like, like okay. macro especially yeah. systematic global macro, it kind of like hugs the line between second responders and diversifiers. Yeah. That's definitely the way that we think about it. That's okay, a that's, really that's good that's point, good. actually. I, I'm so glad I want to hug you, Rodrigo, for bringing up Carrie, because I feel like this is the redheaded stepchild of vaults where it gets no love, it gets no play. Everybody continues to think about carry strategies as being like a currency carry, which is, which is historic. That's right. Everybody sees it as currency. cyclical And, you know, just sort of dovetailing off Koijin's seminal paper on global carry. I mean, it is remarkable just looking at his analysis. Clearly, even time series carry does not have that pro-cyclical component that has historically been attributed to carry as a sort of global quality. And we obviously have, we've done a huge amount of work at carry. We just don't see that pro-cyclicality that everybody is so concerned about. And in fact, it seems to me like global carry is the ultimate kind of diversified global risk premium strategy. And it has the long-term sharp ratio to prove it. Like it really is a remarkable, remarkably underloved and attractive potential. And for it should portfolio. be, it should be loved because trend is actually more complicated than just yield, which is all that carry is. People love yield. When we are calling it the wrong thing, this is our fault. How about that yield strategy? Right? Yeah, that diversified, yeah, yeah. diversified futures yield strategy. Man, the problem is, is the short. Spit out a right? distribution. Yeah. We're off to the races. I know. Just I created know. the next resolve product, Adam. I hear you. you know, I, I would ask you to throw out a few examples of how you're thinking about carry. Yeah. So, for example, carry being in bonds is the yield curve upward sloping at the duration of the bond that you're looking at. If it's upward sloping, you should be long. If it's downward sloping, it means you're getting paid more. To be short the bond, you're actually having, you're earning a negative return relative to cash. Equity dividends are less than the cash rate. Should you be long or short equities? Mm -hmm. And in in commodities, obviously, well, if if markets are in contango, you should be short because the further the deferred futures contract is going to, all things equal, be drawn towards the gravity of spot, which is lower than the contract. If it's in backwardation, it's going to have the gravity of rising too, right? So, you know, global carry is a diversified global long short strategy. It basically says you should be long assets that have a yield, either roll yield or dividend yield or coupon that is higher than the cash rate. And if you're short it, you're earning a premium that is higher than the cash rate. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then over the very long term and net of all fees and costs, it just has a remarkably yeah. stable long term profile. And the misconception comes again from mislabeling what carry is, which is what pe- when you say carry, people think I'm going to buy Mexican pesos. I'm going to yeah. grab my US dollars. I'm going to convert them to Mexican pesos. I'm going to get the spread between that Mexican peso yield and US dollar, assuming that the rate, the FX rate doesn't change for a year. And yeah, that'll blow up on you. That is counter cyclical. That's not so pro pro cyclical. Yeah. It's not going to be great. And that's the only thing people know. Risk parity is just a lever 60, 40 portfolio. Again, naming conventions, and maybe it's, again, doing a better job of communicating the value of different approaches, and we shouldn't be naming a carry at all. I'd be curious of your thoughts on, obviously, the markets have been driven so much by flows 
in macro policy for so long versus fundamentals. Everyone talks about this, right? But now do fundamentals matter more? I don't, I don't know. Like, How are you thinking about geopolitical risk in this age of globalization that has mattered less up until 2020? How being you know, quant investors, systematic investors, how do you incorporate the scenarios that have not yet come to fruition, even though there might be an analog to some sort of, you know, historical type of uh, event? There's two types of geopolitical events. One is the kind of geopolitical event that happens slowly and then all at once, but that the market participants and agents are observing. And there's this information diffusion and there's all the normal market based dynamics at play that allow normal type of systematic consolidated information analysis to drive portfolios to migrate in different directions based on different expected risk and return characters. But then there's that unknown unknown risk or the even, an, I don't know, I guess it's a known unknown risk, but like the risk of nuclear war, that's event risk. I use like a massive California earthquake. Half of California slides off into the Pacific. What happens to markets? I don't know. And it's not the kind of risk that you could hedge because it's purely idiosyncratic. Now, I do think that there's kind of a society disintegration type of risk, which I think is sort of the global nuclear war type risk or global catastrophe type risk that, for example, for my own family, I own catastrophe insurance, which is very far out of the money, long-term calls on gold. That's like a kind of almost an individual type of question. Like I think a diversified ensemble of global macro, systematic global macro is actually very well suited to navigate normal types of geopolitical risk that evolve over time. You know, there's some uncertainty, but markets are kind of aggregating with bets in one direction or another in a wide variety of markets. The other type of risk, that sort of event, singular event risk. So, you know, so let me ta- let me touch upon that because I think you know we talked about this with Chris Schindler in a previous podcast. Adam, how do you mitigate against that policy risk, that like overnight risk that policymakers have, or the earthquake in California? And what's the best solution? And the answer was, well, your best solution is still something that can get luckier because you're certainly your long only portfolio. It has one thing that's going to happen to it. It's going to go down. In a long, short, systematic global macro, you might be net long positioned and be just as bad as your risk parity portfolio. Or you might be 50-50, or you might be net short. And so you have the opportunity in this single event risk horizon to get lucky in a way that you have no opportunity in a long-only portfolio. So my answer to that is a systematic global macro investor is exactly what Adam said, but with the ability to get slightly luckier in those other risks. And, and just generally... You mean I've got a chance, exactly. <laughs> but just even like when you think about the period prior to 1981 and you look at the volatility of inflation, I think Man Group came out with, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but prior to 1981 from 1926 to 1981, it was around 4.6% standard deviation of volatility. And after 1981, it's 1.2 or something like that. Okay, so that was a harder time. There was a lot more conflict. There were wars. But the drivers of asset classes, the reasons why inflation went up and what was affected when inflation went up and then what was affected when inflation went down, what was affected when there were wars, what was affected when there were recessions, are the same drivers that exist today, just more magnified. So the reality is that when you look at alpha, when you look at alpha, alpha requires dispersion. When there's blood on the streets, alpha managers are going to win. And I, just, I don't just mean long-short managers. I mean equity selection managers, sector rotation they have a chance. managers. 
they have more opportunities. There's more, there's more things moving away from each other in unique ways. And when you look at the returns from the LTCM crisis in 98, all the way to the peak of the commodity bull cycle in, in February 2011, active management crushed it in every category. And then you go through a period of benign inflation, persistent growth, where everything's hunky-dory, everybody's cooperating. Well, all of a sudden, it's just a single asset class that dominates because it's easy. Everybody knows. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> Elon Musk did an interview recently that I loved his analogy. He said, in a period of benign inflation, it rains money on idiots. It just rains money on fools. And resource allocation goes the wrong way. And so I think that if we go through a period of global economic sure, problems and issues sure. and wars... Alpha and that overlay is going to do better than it ever has. We've just forgotten. And this idea that Vanguard funds at three basis points are the way of the future is a misreading of history. That's my next question. So how much of this is driven by the macro versus the structural orientation of financial markets today with ETFs, with a ton of passive? And in order for that kind of I just do these intellectual thought exercises all the time. What if everyone was investing in passive? And then you have that next one investor or incremental dollar say, hey, that doesn't make sense. And then you kind of walk that back, right? Then you yeah, do it in the inverse way. I know, you know it's, it's what, a, yeah, does so something it's, need to massively popular... break there before like, we're getting dispersion this year. Definitely. We're getting sector rotation this year, but then how does that yeah, look? So not, you know, the what's the term? saying? What's the saying about inflation? Nothing is better at fiscal inflation than inflation itself. So yeah. in the same way, like you have this situation where indeed, yes, there are market distortions now. There is this pile of money doing these life cycle funds that are coming in at the same time, the same way. And retirees are plowing money into it. There's more retiree funds that are coming out globally. that are doing the same thing. And the way to do it is to do it through simple Vanguard funds and a market cap weighted approach. Okay. So that's what's happened, and it's gotten more and more amplified. What's the solution to that? Well, the solution to that is when things start to break, all of a sudden, that's going to transition out. Some funds, and we're seeing it already. I'm like, well, we're not going to do the passive stuff. We're going to do an active version of a life cycle fund. Or discussions online, I've been saying for 10 years, why not a life cycle fund that does a risk parity approach and starts with a massive amount of leverage and just reduces the leverage, keep the same expected sharp ratio. So all of a sudden, these other ideas are going to start coming in because a decade's worth of flat returns for 60-40 will solve that problem. And that reflexivity, that maximum reflexivity that we see now where you see massive increases and then massive instant collapses and a V recovery because of that it's going to slowly end. And by the end of this decade, nobody's going to want passive. And we're going to have way too much bad money chasing these active managers. That's not as good. And we're going to repeat this cycle over and over. I mean, I know that's one. Well, name, I, I, one I think going forward, opinion. especially in like private markets, what you don't do going forward is what makes a difference as opposed to what you do do. Mm-hmm. And we get maybe not the question explicitly, but I hear a lot of folks still talking about China and onshore China, you know, investing, whether it's private equity or VC, whatever it might be. Perhaps that's something that if you don't do that, that's going to make a huge difference relative to the other things that you do do. Yeah. Right. Things that you avoid may end up making the the big difference rather than how you do the things that you do do. Right. Yeah. That's a fair point. I just had a 45 or 50 minute conversation on this passive flows topic with Drew Dixon and uh, Dave Nadig and Wes Gray and Corey Hofstein. We spent 45 or 50 minutes on this just last week. And you kind of agree there's two different things. One is, I mean, obviously passive flows are having an impact, but it's impossible to disaggregate the impact of the passive flows 
against other factors like just like a consistently declining discount rate over the last three decades or increasing liquidity of global markets and or markets taking on a different utility for investors where now by making them the default for retirement plans, the moneyness of markets has increased and they're now a policy utility. So the Fed and the government can't let markets go down or find some kind of equilibrium because now the real economy is so reliant on those asset prices. Like there's so many different competing dynamics. So there's that whole thing where you can't really disaggregate the different effects. And then there's the other thing is, if not making cap-weighted passive the default, what is the default? Hmm. From a macro efficiency standpoint, you kind of can't make global risk parity the default or at the limit, global risk parity becomes the global cap-weighted portfolio from a macro efficiency standpoint. So it's kind of a turtle's argument. No, but it's it's excess is the issue. It's when one thing becomes too much of the pie. No, I agree. The, I agree. And then you go back. I don't like there's no we could talk about it in reducto ad, ad absurdum and talk about 100 percent this and 100 percent that. But the reality is there is a level by which everybody starts talking about it and realizes that this is not good. And we're seeing sure. it and you move back to something more reasonable. But you can't measure it. Right? It's like the uncertainty. No, you certainly can't. That this is true. Yeah. But you can't measure it because of all the conflating factors. And if you could measure it, how would you change it? You know, yeah. like it's a, these are two, I think, critical questions that Dave Maddock keeps. I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it is the best we could do. Kind of. I know it's bad. I know it ends poorly, but I don't know. I don't know how to measure it and I don't know what to do about it. It's, it's yeah, yeah, cause, we, well, because we're trying to optimize for the average person, right? We're trying to protect the average person. And then at what point of protecting people ends up taking on its own kind of massive gap risk. Systemic risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to talk about just in the context of diversification and kind of just moving moving on a little bit, the diversifier sleeve. And it doesn't need to be the diversifier sleeve, it's just across all the alts. I think a typical institution, and you, you correct me, my observations could be a wrong sample. But it seems to me that investors typically like to find, to identify diversifying strategies that they want in their portfolio and then find specialists in each of those categories to allocate to. So that's an area. I guess there's some theoretical advantages there. In theory, the specialist in each of those areas is going to have the greatest chance of identifying all of the different potential alpha opportunities and know the area the best and know the pitfalls, et cetera. So that's fine. But that direction does not have zero cost either. Because imagine you've got five funds all expressing different types of strategies. And in theory, they're all uncorrelated and they all trade similar securities, but they trade them from different perspectives using different, different approaches. All the time, you're going to have one fund that's buying the same market or security that another fund is going to be selling. This is going to be happening across all five funds, or if you're going to use seven or 10 funds, it's going to be happening across all 10 funds. All of these trades are unproductive trades in isolation. In aggregate, in theory, they're productive because each of them has an edge and the edges are uncorrelated. But it seems to me there's a very substantial advantage to owning a multi-strat fund that is able to net out all of these unproductive trades that would otherwise be happening in the individual funds, all trying to capitalize on their individual edges. How do you think about this trade-off? For me, it's not necessarily binary, whether you build your own multi-strat sector specialist by sector specialist. It really comes down to, again, the people and the culture 
and the sustainability of that type of alpha stream versus the alternative. So if you were to build your own multi-strat with a bunch, say, let's call it five sector specialists, all operating different sectors, you're going to be taking on the netting risk as the investor. Whereas if all those five sector specialists were wrapped up in a multi-strat and it wasn't passed through, then the multi-strat is taking on the netting risk. In that regard, the multi-strat makes more sense. Now, however, is the talent at that multi-strat just as good as the talent of any one of those sector specialists on their own? And that's where the art comes in really more than the science there. Because if you have someone that's like super, super passionate about energy investing, that's all they want to do. And they don't want to be constrained by some sort of top level risk management at a multi-strat, then they might go set up their own shop. Now that's very, very hard to do, but probably more willing to bet on that type of person than the energy PM or team at a multi-strat in isolation. But again, there are benefits of that multi-strat because then you have all these other teams across multi-strat. And then you have the idiosyncratic risk of that one manager, energy manager on, on his or her own not doing well or you know failing. However, that, that's our job to make sure that those types of firms aren't going to fail. What is failure? Failure to me is, is it going to go to zero? I would hope not. I think competent human beings, investment due diligence professionals can pick strategies in certain areas that aren't going to be totally No, I mean, follow-ups. failure is sort of what is the delta between yeah, yeah, your well, outcome exactly. and post-optimum outcome. Exactly. And, and that's just, it's just, it's unknowable, right? So of course. manager selection is definitely important, but portfolio construction is just as important as manager selection. We're never going to find the best energy market neutral or TMT market neutral manager in the space for any one single given year. But can we find ones that are top third, top quartile over a longer time period? I think so. Are those top quartile, top third managers going to be better than a multi-strat of a bunch of sector specialists? I think you're sort of comparing apples and oranges there because the idiosyncratic risk that you're taking in the sector specialist, you know, single strategy is very different than a multi-strat. At the same time, these things need to be adjusted from a leverage perspective because a multi-strat, you aggregate all these strategies, strategies together, they're putting, on, they're, yeah, they're putting on leverage there. So it's really hard to compare one team in a multi-strat versus a different team and operating in the same area not on a, on a multi-strat, it's a unless you really have true visibility to those uh, to those books in isolation. But multi-strats, they tend not to share those things, especially the big ones who might have 10 different kind of TMT types of pods there that are managing those things. It's almost unknowable and impossible you know, to do that. It comes down to, to me, again, I try not to have a bias toward a multi-strat versus you know, a sector specialist. I think you just have to pick and choose your spots with partners that you trust, that you can vet, and that you believe are going to be good long-term partners and put up a, a decent risk-adjusted return. Because otherwise, you're going to be churning your book, churning your book, churning your book, and you're going to be resetting your high watermarks, and yes. it's going to be a losing proposition over time. Yeah, I mean, I hear where you're coming from, because if you've got idiosyncratic managers that are trading the same markets, but maybe they're trading at different frequencies, or you know, you've got two different energy specialist traders, one is an energy specialist primarily in natural gas. The other is primarily in the, in the crude complex or whatever. Then I can certainly see there being very little advantage to consolidating them. I'm more thinking about high capacity, scalable 
diversifiers. You sort of think about market neutral value or carry or trend or low risks, you know, the kind of the Auntie Ilmaman type of diversifier universe, which are fairly well specified, uncorrelated generally for one another, relatively higher frequency turnover, and you're cross-trading a bunch of the same markets. It seems to me that you're better off in that instance to allocate to a multi-strat manager that's going to allocate and trade net across all five different sleeves, all trading the same type of securities, but with five different styles than you are to allocate to a momentum manager, a carry manager, a trend manager, et cetera, right? If you can get them all in the same. But even for idiosyncratic managers, I would be vastly more inclined to invest in Millennium, for example, knowing that he's going to have hundreds or thousands of idiosyncratic managers at his disposal, and he's able to trade net the managers that are trading the same instruments than trying to choose five or 10 or 15 different kind of idiosyncratic or specialist managers Anyways, I've, and yeah. there's a whole leverage and, thing and, and, too. Yeah, the, the leverage thing is really where it comes in because am I getting a 5% alpha with 2x leverage versus a 7% alpha with 7x leverage? Which one there is better after you leverage adjust those? The 5% well, it depends. alpha like if you're gonna, if you're, with 2x leverage would be. But then when you take on that leverage factor, right? When things go wrong, it's really going to go wrong. It's going to go wrong quickly. And that's where leverage can just kill you. Again, that's not common on any sort of you know um, no, no, single you. manager yeah. because they do a f- fantastic job. It just ends up being you n- need to know there's always a risk that you're taking on once you start using. You need to strip out all, all the betas, right? And leverage I- is a beta. You need to factor adjust or leverage adjust those returns to really get a true apples apples comparison. Because at what point does capital become not as abundant or leverage become not as easily to come by in the future? Who knows, again, but that's the risk. So maybe you want those guys, those types of strategies, as well as the idiosyncratic that aren't using as much leverage. Okay. So, I mean, just to sort of, if I can maybe try to sum up the framework that I think you're espousing here, diversify your core beta exposures to the greatest extent possible, and then layer on those three levels of alternative diversifiers, right? So what are they again? Maybe walk through them. So first responders, which would be long vol, tail risk hedging, and in some instances, long duration treasuries. Second responders, more kind of pure trend following CTAs, diversifiers, beta neutral, market neutral types of managers. You could maybe sprinkle in some event-oriented managers that are really good at hedging and that actually do hedge versus the ones that are taking on a bit more directional risk. You see that a lot in the distressed credit space where like, oh, we're buying these assets pennies on the dollar and it's an EMP company and we don't have to you know, hedge out the embedded kind of oil risk there because it's so idiosyncratic as a what's going to happen. But, and again, that's not to be a one-for-one hedge, but what type of embedded beta do you have to the oil markets for those securities that you're training that you might be having, you know, buying on a deep discount with a, hefty margin of safety. But when things go the other way, they just go the other way and you just can't predict it. So hedge out the risk that you're not compensated for, even though that's that's where the inherent conflict is, right? Because you're compensated on incentive fees and you want to get a high enough return as you can to take away as much income as you can. But we don't want to pay for beta. We don't want to pay for beta. We don't want to pay incentive fees for beta. That's a general, just generally, that's a really good takeaway for people is to sort of 
you know, this alpha beta separation and knowing what you should be paying for is really important and not paying for things that you can get for free, like just general exposure to equities and duration and, and broad credit. Jason, where can people learn more about this framework that you're describing? And your uh, you, you, you can go to our website. Um, I, I believe it's Makita.com. If not, just go to your local search engine, whether that's Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever p- people use nowadays. And you can find us there. We have white papers out there. We have webinars. I don't really traffic in social media you know, that often. Kind of just listen to podcasts a lot and be the fly in the wall for a lot of these conversations. And as I said, you know, this is new to me, but more than happy to have a conversation with anyone that wants to reach out. Probably the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Other than that, guys, this has been a lot of fun and look forward to hearing more of your interviews because I always get so much knowledge and insights and I'm trying to maximize the signal to noise ratio because there's a lot more noise out there, especially in legacy kind of financial rags versus a signal. Jason, it's been a pleasure having you. That's that's been been a great conversation, man. Yeah. Thank you so Um, much. I'm sure we'll have you back. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.